Matthew 27, as we have been moving through the, the life of Jesus and we've been uh, seeing these final hours unfold uh, as we're looking at the, these, these parts of Jesus' life carefully. Now, last week, we saw the failure of two disciples. We saw Peter and Judas who had turned their back on God and the ultimate outcomes that had come from that. And now we have the camera moving back toward Christ and looking at the events that are unfolding with him. Remember, we left him in a trial with the Sanhedrin, with the chief priests and the elders who have declared blasphemy against him. And that is why they are seeking to put him to death. But what is curious about what their actions are is that they are not going to try to take this into their own hands, but rather are going to give this to Pilate instead. And that's what you see happening in Matthew chapter 27 and in verse 11, that they take Jesus to the governor. They take him to uh, the Roman governor Pilate at, at this time. Now, to help get a sense of what is going on, and Matthew is fairly concise about some of these events, is you can't have the Jewish leaders go to Pilate and say, he's blaspheming our God, because Pilate doesn't care. <laughs> Pilate's a Roman. He has no regard or any concern about any of the religious laws or any of the religious concerns that you would have going on at that time regarding the Jewish people. So in that way, you need to be thinking about what are the Jewish leaders going to do? What are they going to say to make Pilate care? That's really what, what's at stake here at this moment. And so that's what you have happening here in verse 11. Now, Jesus stood before the governor and the governor asked him, are you the king of the Jews? Now, you have to get a sense of what the other texts tell us a little bit is what they are charging Jesus with is misleading the people and calling himself king. And what they're driving at when they say that is misleading the people to not listen to the Roman kings, Roman Caesars, and that he's going around calling himself king and misleading the people to follow him. It's with that context that you can imagine now Pilate says to Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? And I think that helps you understand why Jesus answers the way that he does. Because you have the words basically, well, you say so, or okay. And it's not a denial, but it's not really a grasping affirmation. And you can appreciate why, because what Pilate is hearing in regards to the charges is not what Jesus is doing. Jesus is not going around Judea and Galilee saying, hey, don't listen to Roman authorities. You know, break all their laws. I'm your king and you should listen to me and follow me. He's not doing that. In fact, think about how many times the religious leaders have tried to trap Jesus to get him to do that. And Jesus has refused. For example, should we pay taxes to Caesar? Jesus goes, yeah. He's not subverting anybody. He's not trying to overthrow the Caesar or do anything like that. And so when Pilate is asking, essentially, are you the king? Are you what they say you are? Well, that's what you say. <laughs> All right. Fair enough. King of the Jews, fine. And that explains what you have in verse 12. 
is that the chief priests and the elders just keep piling on accusations. And you have to imagine what those accusations probably sounded like to be able to try to get Pilate to care about Jesus. The things that you would have to come up with is that somehow he is an insurrectionist or a usurper against the Roman Empire. Otherwise, Pilate's not going to care. It's not going to be his concern. And this then goes to what you see Jesus doing here. Just imagine all of the chief priests and all of the elders as they're here on the side and Jesus is standing before Pilate and Pilate is challenging Jesus. Who are you? Why are you here? Why are you standing before me? And the, the religious leaders are just laying off accusation after accusation. And you read at the end of verse 12 that Jesus doesn't say a word. Which is amazing. I mean, even in the text itself, you will notice Pilate says, don't you hear how many things they testify against you? This wasn't just like lobbying a charge here or there. Here Pilate says, do you hear all the things that they're saying about you? And verse 14, Jesus doesn't give an answer, not even to a single charge. And Pilate is amazed. You know how hard it is to not say something when people are accusing you of things? You know how really hard it is to not say something when people are accusing you of false things? I mean, we're ready to go, right? I'm a wealth of answers at that point. Those things are lies and deceit and false. And he doesn't say a word. What we're going to notice in our lesson today is how many times what Jesus is doing in these final hours is befitting of what the scriptures prophesied would happen regarding the suffering servant. In Isaiah 53, you'll notice one of those places where it speaks of him being oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like a sheep silent before her shearers. He did not open his mouth. This is not going to be time for a big debate, a big argument. He's not going to get someone to bring up a defense on his side. He just stands there silently because this is the plan and the will of God. And so they're throwing all the accusations they can. And yet Jesus remains silent. But what is interesting is that Pilate now is going to move this off of himself. Even after the trial that Pilate conducts, as you read all of the gospel accounts, there is one thing that is true in Pilate's mind, and that is Jesus has done nothing wrong. There's no reason for him to be here at this moment. And what we're going to look at in this paragraph is notice all of the different ways, and it's Matthew records some of them, but some of the different ways that Pilate is going to try to have Jesus to be released. And you read Luke's account, Pilate over and over again says, I'm going to punish him and release him. I'm going to punish him and release him. I'm letting him go. I'm letting him go. And Pilate has in mind a way that he's going to accomplish this. You'll notice in verse 15 of Matthew 27, it says, Now at the feast, the governor was accustomed to release for the crowd any one prisoner whom they wanted. And you can imagine the wheels are turning in Pilate's mind of how he can accomplish this because he has a a person in his custody 
that we're told, according to Matthew's account, is a notorious prisoner. The reason why he's notorious is because the other gospel accounts tell us he is an insurrectionist and he's a murderer. So everybody knows this guy. And he's being held by the Romans on those charges. And Pilate then thinks he's got a good angle here. As you will notice in verse 17, he puts it to the crowd and lets the crowd conduct the trial. Who do you want me to release to you? Do you want Barabbas? Now, as you're there listening to this, please put in your mind. Condemned murderer and insurrectionist. Or do you want Jesus who's called the Christ? Put in your mind parenthesis. A guy walking around saying he's a king. And by the way, probably another parenthesis. A guy you all seem to like. In fact, Pilate seems to understand that in verse 18. Pilate says, it says regarding Pilate, Pilate knew that it was out of envy that they had delivered him up. That Jesus is going around and he's always got throngs of crowds with him. People are listening to him and following him. And you can imagine that Pilate is aware of this and understands that the only reason the Jewish leaders have brought Jesus to this moment is as in short, they don't like him. They're envious of him. They're jealous. It's not because there's an actual charge. It's not because there's anything that Pilate should do about this. And I think it is useful to note that Pilate understands that. And we can read in the history accounts that are given to us about Pilate. He had absolutely no regard or any care to help the Jewish leaders at all. He had no concern to help them out. This is not a moment where he's going to be like, well, since you guys don't like him, I guess I'll help you out. Pilate often went against the Jewish leaders because he did not like them. And that was pretty much the way the Romans were about the Jewish people and the land of Judea. And so here he knows why Jesus is standing before him. And so he's asking then a calculated question. Who do you want me to release to you? Because in his mind, I know there's nothing legitimate here. Now, I want to underscore that for a moment. Because I want you to notice that there's nothing in the text here or in any of the other gospel accounts or in the retelling of the New Testament apostles as they proclaim what happened at this moment. That there is any concern by Pilate about Jesus at all. Pilate, it does not say, well, you know, I've been watching this guy for a few years and he really bothers me and I'm really concerned about how he has people following him. The Romans don't care. The reason I bring that up is I've grown wearisome of how many television shows and productions and History Channel things continue to try to indicate that the Romans cared at all about this Jesus guy and his teaching and his followers. They don't care. And Pilate is showing it right here. Pilate, the mentality is not, we're very concerned that Jesus is going to overthrow the Roman Empire. Not at all. <laughs> Well, we're really concerned that he might set himself up as king in Jerusalem. 
not a concern. This is just some guy with 12 guys walking around Judea and Galilee, and the Romans don't care. And that's why you're seeing Pilate begin to do what he does. If Pilate was concerned, we wouldn't even have this paragraph. He'd just go, great, thank you, you helped me out, done. No, he's now trying to release him. Who do you want? Do you want a terrible murderer who is on my death row moment here? Or do you want this guy who walks around calling himself king? That's the big question. And so Pilate understands that there is nothing true. There is nothing worthy of judgment or any of that in regards to what the charges are that the Jews are levying against him. And this again goes back to what Isaiah said exactly what would happen. Isaiah said he was taken away because of oppression and judgment. It wasn't going to be that there was anything true. The judgments were going to be false. It was all going to be under false pretenses. It was all going to be an oppression against him. Nothing valid is stated against Jesus in the slightest. There's also one other interesting clue in verse 19. While he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent word to him with a message. And the message was this. Have nothing to do with that righteous man. For I have suffered much because of him. That is quite a picture. She says, I had a dream. And whatever was going on in that dream, we're not told. But obviously it gave her the indication that he, Jesus, is a righteous man and you should not be a part of whatever is going down with this trial sequence. That's the message given to him. You need to just let this go and stay away and don't be a part of it. So this gives Pilate all the more reason to want to release Jesus, have nothing to do with him. And so again, you will notice that the question would be asked of them. So what should we do with this Jesus? What do you want me to do? And you can imagine if the question was posed to you and you had a notorious insurrectionist, a notorious prisoner, a murderer who is worthy of capital punishment set up against a guy who was walking around teaching. Shouldn't the crowd say, release the teacher and not the murderer. I don't know that any of us, if we were given a choice in the crowd and we go, okay, the state decided, the state of Florida decided, we're going to let you decide who we're going to execute. Now we've got this guy who's a really bad guy who has murdered people. We can release him to you. You know, or this, there's this guy who goes around saying he's a king and he teaches, you know, these scriptures. Who's going to go? We want the murderer to wander around free. Send us the murderer. Nobody's going to say that in their right mind. This is what Pilate has before him. Expecting them to say, surely release Jesus. Let's call it the Christ. But you're told an interesting turn of events in verse 20. 
In verse 20, we're told that the Jewish leaders persuaded the crowd. What would be logical here is to say, we got to make sure that the murderer gets what's due to him. Go ahead and release Jesus to us. But we're told the chief priests and the Jewish leaders go about the crowd and start persuading them to tell Pilate to release Barabbas. I just kind of have a visual of that, of the leaders moving through the crowd and saying to them, we got to get rid of this Jesus guy. He's dangerous. He's a threat, right? Barabbas. Just to say Barabbas. We're all going to say Barabbas. You need to say Barabbas too. We're all in together on this. Everybody, when he asks, we're all going to say Barabbas, okay? Verse 21. So the governor again asked, Which of the two do you want me to release to you? And they said, Barabbas. I want you to note that Pilate is clearly thrown by this. In verse 22, what then should I do with Jesus? Now, he he immediately doesn't go, oh, okay, all right, I'll take care of Jesus because, you know, you you had your choice. You want Barabbas, great, here you go, I'll execute. He goes, whoa, whoa, whoa. Barabbas, hang on a minute. If I release Barabbas to you, what am I supposed to do with Jesus? What do you expect me to do with him? I have found nothing wrong with him. There's no charges. There's no guilt. There's no reason to execute him. So if somebody's going to die, why am I giving you Barabbas and why am I, why am I dealing with Jesus? What am I supposed to do with him? Verse 22. Crucify him. Notice Pilate's still thrown by this. Verse 23. Why? Why? Why are you asking for Jesus to be crucified? Why? What evil has he done? Why should we kill him? Why do you want him crucified? Luke's account, I will just punish him and release him. There's no reason to crucify him. Why? What evil has he done? And notice there's no rationale. There's no, here's the charges. Verse 23, they shouted all the more, crucify him. Can you visualize what that would have sounded like? The shouting and the drumming of the crowd now in this repetition. What do you want me to do to him? Crucify him. Why? Crucify him. What has he done? Crucify him. I'll punish him and release him. Crucify him. They are demanding incessantly. Crucify him is what the crowd demands. You will notice in verse 24, Pilate sees, it says there that he is 
gaining nothing, but a riot is beginning. Please visualize this. This is not just some people standing there calmly going, hey, you know, we think you should crucify him. They are riled up. This is a bunch of angry people shouting, crucify him, and the beat is getting stronger and stronger and stronger. That it is getting to such a fevered pace within the crowd that Pilate looks and it's about to just be chaos. A riot is about to ensue is what the text tells us. It's about to all break loose. He can't have that happen. He can't have that mess on his hands. Verse 24. So he took the water and washed his hands before the crowd, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. It is an amazing picture because, again, these things point back to what Isaiah was saying. There was nothing about his appearance, no beauty, no majesty that would draw us to him. Instead, he's despised and he's rejected. We turned our backs on him. He was despised and we didn't care. This moment is carrying the weight of that. They are saying, we don't want Jesus. We want the murderer. What should I do if, if I release to you the murderer? Crucify him. Crucify him, crucify him. Pilate wants nothing of this. I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. What Pilate is saying here is essentially, you're the reason this man is going to die. My hands are clear. You have caused this. This is your decision. I have repeatedly said I will punish him and release him. But that is not your will. You're the reason Jesus was not released to you. You're the reason that Jesus is being crucified, not me. His blood is on you. You see to it yourselves. Verse 25, all the people respond. His blood be on us and on our children. We accept responsibility. That's what they just said. Yep, that's right, Pilate. It's not you, it's us. We want him crucified. We will take that on us, on our family, on our children. We will bear the weight of that. There's some tremendous irony later on about that. When Peter and John go about preaching in Jerusalem, and you have them arrested, and then the apostles arrested, And you have the high priest questioning them in Acts 5, saying, We strictly charge you not to teach in this name, speaking of Jesus. Yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching. Please listen. And you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. Yeah. You bet. Because it wasn't that long ago you said so. You said. We're responsible. You said his blood be on us and our children. And notice they must be saying something to that effect for the high priest to say, you're, you're trying to bring this man's blood on us. Yeah, that's right. 
Because he's an innocent man that you had crucified. Verse 26. So Pilate releases Barabbas. I don't even know what that looked like. I don't know that you're going up and hugging the murderer. As he just gets set free. The murderer is set free. Verse 26, Pilate prepares Jesus for crucifixion by having him scourged. There are times in the gospel accounts where the brevity and the concise nature of the account is shocking. This is one of them. That it just simply says he had him scourged and prepared for his crucifixion. We aren't told exactly what that looked like. We certainly have history that looks at what Roman scourgings did look like. We aren't told how long they scourged him. We aren't told how bad it was. But I will give you that Isaiah did give you a little bit of a picture of what would happen. We sometimes start the suffering servant account in Isaiah 53. It starts a few verses in front of that in chapter 52. And it says this, just as many were appalled at you, His appearance was so disfigured that he did not look like a man and his form did not resemble a human being. I don't know when else this would have been accurate to the life of Jesus except right here. He is taken away for scourging. And Isaiah says he's not even going to look like a human anymore when they're done with him. We'll talk more about that in the future, but it will explain why he can't carry his cross. Because he's going to endure a scourging here and prepared for his complete execution. Let's stop there in the story, in the account of the life of Jesus, and just make two observations. Number one, I just want us to think about that we're the crowd. Number one, I want us to think about how We are the crowd. We're the crowd in this way. We are a people who regularly say anyone but Jesus. How many times do we have the opportunity to receive Jesus and we say no? How many times do we choose to do anything or choose anyone else but Jesus? We so easily choose our comfort over Jesus. We choose our entertainment over Jesus. We choose our rest over Jesus. We choose our fleshly desires over Jesus. We choose our family and friends over Jesus. We choose our careers over Jesus. How easy it is to think about how many times we say we want anything else and anyone else but Jesus. That was the decision that the crowd had made and is often a frequent decision that we make. That we would rather have something else in our lives than him. 
rather than receive him into our lives and let him be our God and our savior and our ruler and our leader, we set him to the side and we pick something else. And we are also the crowd because it's our sins that put him in this condition. And Pilate squarely wants the crowd to own that here. His blood's on you. This happened because of you, which is exactly what Isaiah said was going to happen. In describing the events leading to the crucifixion of Jesus, Isaiah says he's pierced because of us. It's our rebellion. It's our sins. He's crushed because of our iniquities. Punishment for our peace was on him. We're the reason for all of this. We're the crowd. We're the problem. In fact, this is what the Apostle Peter has to make the point over and over again out loud and proclaiming. Is sometimes the question is asked, well, well, who's responsible? And the New Testament's very clear. Everybody is. In, in Acts 4 and verse 27, when they gather together in prayer, they say, For in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus. Okay. Who was gathered against Jesus? Who's resisting Jesus? Herod, Pilate, the Gentiles, and the people of Israel. I think that got everybody. Nobody's excluded from who's the crowd resisting Jesus. Peter says, everybody. Nobody wanted him. Nobody wants him as their savior. Nobody wants him as in charge of their lives as Lord and leader. They all resisted him. Just as the scriptures had said. We're the crowd. And certainly because of our sins, his blood is on us. For what we've done. But I'd also like for you to think about that we're Barabbas too. We're the ones worthy of punishment that are getting set free when Jesus should be set free. His crucifixion's why we're set free. His death is what sets us free. And in this imagery, you have a picture that that's us. Here we are before God, worthy of every condemnation. We have sinned. We're worthy of judgment. We're worthy of punishment. And somehow we're being set free. Can you imagine what that looked like to Barabbas that day? You can imagine in that whole trial sequence before the crowd. And it's him and Jesus. He had to be thinking, well, I'm done for. Him or me? I'm the murderer. They're going to let him go. He's going to get picked, right? And they picked Barabbas. That had to be stunning, that that moment. But they'd rather see Jesus crucified to set the murderer free. Jesus is crucified to set us sinners free. In fact, there's something funny about his name, Barabbas. You've grown up in the peas, you probably know just a little bit of Hebrew like me. <laughs> just just a, just a, a drop. You'll notice that names back then had meaning, right? Bar was always son of. 
You know what Abba is? It's the son of the father. This is quite a picture of putting two sons of the father on trial. Barabbas called by his parents, son of the father, and Jesus, who is truly the son of the father. But you know, in letting Jesus go to his crucifixion is how we get to be sons of the father. We're set free. And it allows us to become children of God. And the big question is now, what will you do? Because you've been set free by the death of Jesus. Let's go to God in prayer. Heavenly Father, it is a stunning scene. To see the perfect Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world in whom there was no deceit, there was no sin, there was nothing worthy of a charge. Not even a Roman court could find anything wrong with him. And yet he died for us. Lord, thank you for your amazing, amazing love. That though we choose anything and everyone but your son, your son died to set us free so that we can be your children. So that we can say that we are sons and daughters of you. Lord, forgive us for how many times we have not chosen your son. Forgive us for how often we have picked all of our other things in life as more valuable than your son. Truly, Lord, forgive us that we do not hold your son in the highest regard and value like we ought. Lord, I pray that Our freedom from our sins will cause us to love you more and to follow your son all the more. Forgive us for where we've gone gone wrong and gone astray. And Lord, I pray that you would strengthen us to follow you in every area of our lives. Help us to see that we did not get what we deserve, but instead are given a place in your family as your children because your son died on our behalf. Thank you so much, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. So my question to you is, will you live for him? Because he gave you a new life. There in the trial scene, his death now releases you. We're not told what Barabbas did with the rest of his days. It's almost like this open-ended question, what are you going to do now that you've been set free? Now that you've been released from what should have been given to you, you can now live free. What will you do with the freedom? I pray you will not live with your freedom to go back into sin, but instead to turn to Jesus with all of your heart. 
to love him because he gave his life for you and to serve him faithfully. We would love to help you do that today. Can, can, we, can we help you in any way? If you have a desire to follow Jesus, we would love to, to talk to you about that. If you're ready to become a follower of him, to be immersed in water for the forgiveness of your sins, we want to do that. If you need prayers so that we can encourage you to walk faithfully with him, we'll do that for you. So just let us know how we can help you. Won't you come while we stand and while we sing?